Namaste everyone. Let us start by invoking the divine presence who is the source of all knowledge. Heartiest welcome to all our participants and viewers to the seventh edition of Vachariki. Vachariki is an initiative taken up by Rashtram School of Public Leadership at Rishihut University as a part of the 150th birth anniversary of Sri Aurobindo. The purpose is to facilitate dialogues, discussions, and exchange of thoughts with an aim toward intellectual enhancement and spiritual nourishment. As the second part of the Kenopanishad points out, Atma na vindate viryam, vidyaya vindate mitam. That is, by the self one finds the force to attain, and by the knowledge one finds immortality. This seventh edition of Vachariki is titled Inevitable Wars and Illusionary Peace. Sri Aurobindo's Realism. To set the context, it won't be wrong to say that the history of war is as old as the history of civilization itself. A point of commonality between our great Itihasas like the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the Western epics like the Iliad, Beowulf or the Paradise Lost is that they all narrate a story centered around war. The dawn of this decade itself has already witnessed two major events. That is, the end of a war, the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan, and the start of a new one, that is, the war between Russia and Ukraine. In today's session, we will try to understand the causes that lead to such specters of brutality and devastation. We will also ponder upon the question of possibility of peace. Sri Aurobindo points out, and I quote, war and violent revolution can be eliminated if we will but not without immense difficulty, but on the condition that we get rid of the inner causes of war and the constantly accumulating karma of successful injustice of which violent revolutions are the natural outcome. Otherwise, there can be only at best a fallacious period of artificial peace. We will try to find out if peace is really possible, then what are the ways in which we at an individual level at a societal, national, and global levels can organize or enhance ourselves so that this possibility can become a reality. I would now like to welcome Dr. Sampada Nanda Mishra, 
who is a professor at Rashtram School of Public Leadership, Rishihut University, a scholar of Sanskrit and an ardent disciple of Sri Aurobindo and the mother to give the opening remarks. Welcome, sir. Namaskar to all of you. So, and I extend a grand welcome to you all in this uh, chapter of Vaicharike, which is dealing with a very pertinent topic. See, if we look at the ancient history and especially the ancient Indian perspective to the world, see, there is, there is a saying that man is a fighting animal. But if we look at the whole uh, history of the world in ancient India, so there are two things on which it is why the man fights. One is the self-preservation, one is self-expansion. And uh, then we have from a deeper spiritual point of view, a constant battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of light, which is going on. Uh, that is what is the Daivasura Sangram. So this battle is something constant, something natural to the human consciousness, and it will continue. And this is where the, uh, the, the one has to get victory over the forces of darkness by allowing the gods, by allowing the divine to manifest in one's own consciousness. So on one side, we have the self-preservation that for our own protection, but I can also link it with the what, what the Gita says, that by oneself, one has to deliver oneself or protect oneself. So from a deeper spiritual point of view, war has a very different uh, connotation. And uh, today we have uh, all our experts and uh, our keynote speaker, Arvind Nilkantanji, who is an expert on many issues. And then we will, uh, we will be very happy to hear his views. And especially we are discussing it in the light of Sri Aurobindo and our panelists, Govind and Uday, they will be contextualizing uh, this whole idea of war from the perspective of Sri Aurobindo and Srijit Datta, who is uh, my colleague here at Rashtram School of Public Leadership, Rishwood University, will be moderating it. So I welcome you all and then thank you all for agreeing to be a part of it. And then all the viewers here on the Zoom and on the uh, YouTube, I welcome you all and then I'm sure that we will have a very fruitful discussion coming out of this. Dhanyavad. Thank you, sir, for giving such wide, wise words of wisdom in your opening remarks. And as you rightly said, one can gain victory over the forces of darkness by completely immersing ourselves in the divine. Now we will move on to the keynote address. For this, we have a speaker who does not require any introduction. Sri Aravindan Neelakandanji is a contributing editor at Swaraj with a focus mainly on culture, science, philosophy of science, and history. He is also the co-author of the much-celebrated bestseller, Breaking India, which explores historical development, fabricated fault lines, threatening the unity of India. With this, I welcome Sri Aravindan Neelakandanji to give the keynote address. Welcome, sir. Namaste. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. It is indeed a honor and a pleasure to talk about this particular topic. And the context is very clear. The Russian aggression on Ukraine and the 
the Western hypocrisy surrounding the Ukraine-Russia war. In this particular context, what is that we can get from Sri Aurobindo? That is what we are going to see, and we are also going to see it from the broader. Uh, in the we are going to see it in the broader canvas of evolution. So we know that the human species have a defining feature. They kill the fellow members of their species through highly abstracted motivations and efficiently institutionalized mechanisms. From the projectiles of the humanoids, we have graduated to the intercontinental ballistic missiles. Just the cost of building two small-sized nuclear submarines actually can provide electrification for almost five years for entire Africa. This is not simply a rhetorical statement. This is about how we, as a species, how we prioritize our resources. We give our most precious and scarce resources, and we employ the best brains of our species to kill fellow members of our species. So, in a way, this becomes kind of our defining character. We are not just naked apes, as Desmond Morris said. From this point of view, we are actually suicidal apes, accumulating the capacity for repeated species annihilation on this planet, again and again and again. And what is our way out? That is the question that we have to ask. Pacifism, that is the answer that comes to our mind at once, pacifism. But the problem here is, one nation's pacifist is for another nation an unwitting accomplice in subversion of that particular nation. So this particular aspect of pacifism has been made into, forged into a kind of a strategy, perfected into a strategy of subversion, particularly during the Cold War by the USSR. They built an entire industry of subversion built on peace movement in the United States. After the collapse of the USSR, the USA too has made use of the righteous indignation we have for weapons of mass destruction in the hands of fanatical dictators to invade places like Iraq and in the process creating how many chronic contracts for oil, we don't know actually. It may be there in the CAA orchids. So the answer may exist actually in studying the evolutionary nature of our species. Why do we as species possess some very unique characteristics? No other species have religion. We have religion, of course. In, in certain humanoids like chimpanzee, we can see the rudimentary aspects of religious feeling and religious experience, but in, it is very manifest in human species. And more importantly, we have religious experiences. Apart from the, the organized religion, we also have religious experiences. This religious exp the religions may have cultural specifics, but the religious experiences are almost universal for our species. From strong religious experiences, we start building our systems, our beliefs, our spirituality, our clans, our cultures, our nationhood. And finally, we also build around us our barriers, our boundaries. The religious experience is the collective womb of our species from which come almost all things that define us as humans. In fact, we should be called homo religicals. 
through us, the planet has evolved into self-awareness. See, the point is, we as a species are part of this planet, and this planet has evolved self-awareness and a kind of an manifest consciousness because of our species. So that is the importance of our species. And even at a very complete materialistic level, this truth is being understood. Like Carl Sagan said, we are stardust contemplating the stars. So this is the kind of point where we are in the evolution. Now, in terms of the war, we have to think in terms of our evolution and our unique abilities. It is the religion that gave us this great capacity, the religious experience. Again, it is from this religious experience, the capacity for war and the will to annihilate has come up. Once he who realized this truth of our evolutionary nature and the crisis that we as a species are undergoing, from the very emergence of us as a human species was Sri Aurobindo. And he did it way ahead of uh, uh, many of the modern thinkers. Well, his conceptual and visionary sweep runs into thousands of years in the past and millennia into the future. His own life as an individual witnessed some very crucial and defining planetary events. One is the Indian freedom struggle with this huge mass of uh, human beings coming together as a nation and fighting for liberty. It is a very crucial planetary event as such. Unfortunately, with the Eurocentric view, the Indian freedom struggle is always portrayed as a paragraph or as a half of a chapter in any world history. Actually, it deserves a very important chapter. So it was the Indian freedom struggle and he immersed himself in this Indian freedom struggle in its nascent, nebulous form with revolutionary activities. Then, when he was going for his spiritual sadhana, he actually witnessed the two world wars. And then he was also witness to the independence movement that was getting transformed and the pain and tragedy of India's partition. And after that, when he left his body in 1950, when he got into Samadhi in 1950, the Cold War was already there in place. So he had seen all the important aspects of the human species in this. So now understanding how Sri Aurobindo comprehended all these world events through his own vision of evolution will help us understand what is happening to our species, whether it is in Ukraine or whether it is in Afghanistan. Sri Aurobindo sees human being as a transitory organism. To, yeah, it is a kind of a transitionary organism to a higher evolved species. What is the nature of this evolution going to be? Is it purely physical? Is there going to be a physical transformation of uh, this particular species? Or is it purely vital? Now, Sri Arbindo pointed out that if the evolutionary energy that is using the human species as a way of expressing itself through the myriad forms of human civilization and cultures, clans and nations, it channelizes its advancements purely in terms of physical and the vital, then the species would self-annihilate. So this is the crucial point. 
that the evolution is there. In this evolutionary path, a lot of energy is getting channelized through the human species. And if this energy channelizes itself only in the physical layer or only through the vital channels, then the species would self-annihilate itself. During that nebulous phase of freedom struggle, at the international level, a very important geopolitical event happened. This is a point is Sri Aurobindo's ideas, they didn't come out just all at once. They were slowly evolving and there are certain crucial points, crucial consistencies that we can see throughout his writings. So during the, the, the revolutionary period, when India was awakening herself in a very strong way, 1905, an important event happened in the international scenario. The small island nation of Japan, it defeated Russia, a very big European power, an European empire. So here is an Asiatic island nation defeating a very vast European empire. And this naturally excited Indian revolutionaries who were already looking at Japan as a kind of an example of an Asiatic power that stood on its own culture, its own values, and was countering the West. Sri Aurobindo wrote about this in his Bhavani Mantra. So he says, all sorts of theories had been started, have been stated to account for the uprising. But now, intellectual Japanese are telling us what were the fountains of that mighty awakening, the sources of that inexhaustible strength. They were drawn, they were drawn from religion. It was the Vedantic teachings of Oyomi and the recovery of Shintoism with this worship of the national Shakti of Japan in the image and person of the Mikado that enabled the little island empire to wield the stupendous weapons of Western knowledge and science as lightly and invincibly as Arjuna wielded the Gandiva. So this is what he wrote in Bhavani Mantra. Here you can identify one important principle that is, when a nation asserts itself very strongly and when it is doing something that is almost impossible, then it is deriving the strength from a deeper primordial spiritual source. And this energy is synchronized with the wavelength of its national being. And this is what was identified by Sri Aurobindo early on itself about this war and the context of the war the, and the process that leads a nation to rejuvenate itself and face impossible odds. At the same time, even before he started his spiritual sadhana, culminating in the synthesis of integral yoga and vision of an evolutionary quantum jump for the human species, Sri Aurobindo could see how even such a strengthened nation could become a threat to freedom of other nations. So when Japan invaded Korea, Sri Aurobindo wrote in Bande Madaram that the Koreans cannot see their way to acquiesce in Japanese rule. Ergo, they are considered as arc intriguers by the Western press. Europe in her present temper seems to be the most uncompromising enemy of the liberty of 
all people except her own. This is a, a statement that totally gives the essence of the Western understanding of the world. So then he says, Europe is a worshipper of success and we need not wonder if she is glad to see an Eastern power taking a leaf out of her book in threatening the liberty of nations. So he says in this particular uh, passage that he had written in Bhante Madhra, 1907. So Bhavani Mandir was written around 1905. This is in 1907. In this, you see that Sri Aurobindo tells very clearly that Japan has started imitating the West in her outward expansion. In doing so, she is crushing the liberty of other nations. And this kind of behavior by an Asiatic nation is seen as a kind of cultural or civilizational triumph by the West. An Asiatic nation has started behaving exactly like a Western colonial power. So this is seen by the West as a kind of civilizational triumph. So you see in this, both the instances, you see that Sri Aravinto is very clearly talking about how we can learn from another one nation, which is at war, at the same time, we should be very cautious in understanding the direction in which a particular nation that is reasserting itself goes. So here, Sri Bindo, while he is very positive at the victory of Japan over the colonial aggressors through the discovery of her own inner strength, also sees Japan as any other colonial aggressor when she turns on another nation. At the same time, Sri Aurobindo also wants India to emerge strong so that she gets into a negotiating position. If the Asiatic superpower of that time, either China or Japan or both creating an alliance, they coming together against the British India. If they are coming together against British India, Sri Aurobindo wanted India to organize herself politically, even though she was a colony of the British, even though she was part of the British Indian Empire, she had to organize herself politically as a unit so that her voice can stand alone, using the situation to further her own liberty. There, he sees Indians making India a strong national political entity. This also he had written. All this before his uh, uh, sadhana days, his pre-sadhana days, he had written this. So, this is the first phase of Sri Aurobindo regarding war and regarding the Indian situation in the context of a war. Now we come to the next phase, which is when he had uh, started doing his sadhana. In the first phase that we have to understand two important things here. One is that Sri Aurobindo sees religion as the basic foundation of a nation system. The second point is the simple formula of enemy of my enemy is my friend does not appeal to Sri Aurobindo. There are certain values. He is not ready to use the suppression of another nation to the advantage of India. He wants India not to take sides here. He wants India to emerge as a strong independent entity and to speak on her own right based on her own values. Then we have another text that is about 
the destiny, the human destiny, which uh, he, uh, the human cycle. And the text was published in 1949, titled as Human Cycle, but it was originally serialized on a monthly basis from August 1916 to July 1918 in the magazine Arya under the title The Psychology of Social Development. This text is very important because it was when it was published in 1949 as the human cycle. The experience of the Second World War II has been taken into account. And already when it was written, when it was getting written, the First World War was going on. So Sri Aurobindo could see exactly how the war was unfolding and what are all the forces that were working on this uh, war. And he could weave all this into his book. So here, Sri Aurobindo goes in detail into the psychology of war and its impact on human, human evolution. He also studies the various arrangements that emerge and their impacts on war, peace, and the evolution of our species. So after the First World War, though Germany had been defeated, here Sri Aurobindo makes a very important point that we all have to understand clearly. Sri, after the war, Though Germany had been defeated, Sri Aurobindo points out that despite its defeat, it has defeated the moral core of humanity. So he says that the German gospel has evidently two sides, the internal and the external. The cult of the state, nation or community, and the cult of international egoism. So these two are there in the German mechanism, the German machine the unsparing compulsion is against the assistant if for the time entirely crushed in the battlefield seems to have already secured the victory in the moral sense of human rights. What exactly he means by this is that all the aspects that were present in the German system, they were being accepted by the, the victors. The victors were using the German system in their institutions, in their warfare, in their uh, dealing with the rebels, rebellion that were happening inside their own territories, in all this, they were using this German value system. The reason is because the German values, the German view, this, this machine, the German machine works on the principles of what he calls objective subjectivism. So this objective subjectivism is plainly based on two things. One is the, the material aspect and another is the vital aspect. So when combining both the material aspect and the vital aspect and seeing no further, what happens is that you create a kind of a war machine out of a nation. Whether it is doing commerce, whether it is doing education, whether it is doing social service, the method is that of a warfare. It is a war machine. So the entire commerce is about how I am winning over you, how I am dominating. So whether it is peace time or whether it is war time, the peace time is nothing but a preparation for a manifest war. And war is nothing but to create a kind of an economic slavery or create a commercial slavery of the vanquished nation. There are no principles involved, but principles will be used there. So this is the kind of system that was present in Germany, which has been accepted by other nations, whether they were, despite the fact that they defeated Germany. So now what happens is 
the true individuality of the man and the nation that is being lost for this kind of uh, egoistic national egoism that he calls whenever there is national egoism sri arbindo says there is going to be war and whenever there is war there are going to be massacres and there are going to be human suffering here sri arbindo points out that at least in the case of india there were a group called kshatriyas the soldiers they alone fought and the rest of uh, the society was usually left free they were not much affected by the war of course there were transgressions even in mahabharata war there were transgressions so what to say of the ordinary human wars that happened in ancient india there were transgressions there were cruelties but the general principle is that if king invades another territory and if he is going to create harm for the people of that territory then that would be a shame for the king let me give an example in the case of rajendra chola who was a great uh, tamil king he invades the territories in karnataka the chalukya those areas rashtrakutas that area he invades and he secures some victory then the places where he had won victories so that that places again slowly those kings are reorganizing themselves and they talk about the chola invasion and then they criticize the chola invasion telling that during this particular chola invasion there were certain jain temples that were destroyed there were certain brahmins who were actually harmed etc etc or when when historians talk about uh, the islamic aggression they often point out this particular criticism of uh, uh, rajendra chola made by his contemporaries and they say that see the, the kings are no different but there is a vital difference and that difference is this when rajendra chola a vedic saivage king a vedic saivage emperor when he invades the other territories he could never say that i destroyed a jain temple and so i am this great protector of saivism when somebody says that you destroyed a jain temple he actually hangs its head in shame transgressions happened whenever such transgressions happened the kings would make sure that the jain temples were rebuilt or when the cholas went and sacked anuradha pura in sri lanka they they built the buddhist vikaras again in a very big way but in the case of the other invaders the other type of invaders you will find that destroying the temples of another faith is actually considered as a praise here it is considered as a guilt so this is the difference when you have the concept of kshatriyas then the the, the cruelty and the, the the misery of the war are actually reduced a lot so sri arbindo points this out that when you are if you are if you are having national ego then you will be having national armies and no amount of pacifist songs are going to reduce this reality is not going to make this reality go away in that case at least you have a concept like that of kshatriyas then you can spare a large amount of humanity from the suffering and uh, sri arbindo points out again that pacifism as we see today like through the league of nations or united uh, nations organization this is nothing but creating small temporary arrangements and in this temporary arrangements you will not be able to secure 
permanent peace. How you can secure permanent peace is you have to allow the national soul of a nation. And here he says this very clearly that every nation has a soul like an individual soul. But there are two, two truths that a ruler has to understand. One is that this national soul has its roots in the transcendental reality, the transcendental truth that is common to all existence. So one particular nation cannot claim or one particular race, one particular clan, it cannot claim that it has a higher access to the truth or that it is superior. Its national soul is superior. It cannot claim that. It has to understand. This is what Sri Aurobindo says that the, the, the nation has to understand that its national soul is nothing but a particular form of expression of this cosmic transcendental essence. And if we understand that, then our expression of the national soul is going to be more universal than going to be expansionist. Otherwise, the national soul channelizes its energy into its national egoism. And that is the vital transmission. If that vital transmission happens and you have no idea of the transcendental reality being your real essence, then the physical sciences will come to the aid of this vital egoism. When the physical sciences through the technologies come to the aid of this vital egoism, then it can create heavy amount of destructive capacity. And once this destructive capacity is created, that acts as a deterrent. That alone acts as a deterrent. And all you need is one day a mad dictator to come and push the button and then the entire humanity will die. So we are always in the brink of self-annihilation. Hence, Sri Aurobindo points out very clearly that you have to channelize the energies, not just into physical and the vital, but also into the spiritual, which is your real essence. If you do not do that, then you are always in the danger of sitting in the brink of self-annihilation. And another important aspect that uh, he, he tells is that do not get deceived by the appearance of uh, peace. Because peace is the time when you are actually working for war. This became true soon after Sri Aurobindo's passing, when the Cold War ushered in. And after the Cold War, what happened? We have to see it very clearly from Sri Aurobindo's light. Now we are having the problem of Russia and Ukraine. Let us just apply the format of Sri Aurobindo to this Russian-Ukraine problem. In the time of Sri Aurobindo, there was Germany and Germany fell. But at the same time, the value system of Germany got imprinted into all the European powers. And then it triggered the greater, more destructive Second World War with the Germany rejuvenating herself in a very Asuric way. We can apply the same concept here. Let us take the fall of USSR in 1991. The fall of USSR, we should note, is also the fall of a vision of great idealism. 
it was an utopian dream of equality and fraternity sri arbindo pointed out always that this this particular aspects the equality and fraternity which he didn't take from the french revolution but he took it from india's upanishads so this utopian dream of equality and fraternity was promised by the ussr without liberty but remember the marxist ideology itself promises their spiritual liberty it will be very surprising for people but if you go through the writings of karl marx you will find that he was telling and it comes very close to uh, our own concept of maya actually he was telling that the the social and economic liberties and freedom that you are thinking that you are having in a capitalist uh, system is actually illusion you are actually not free you are a slave to the system you are living in a capitalist matrix so far so good but what was wrong with marxism it could not deliver the spiritual freedom it promised it just removed whatever social and economic freedom a person had whatever individual freedom that the person had so it promised it was constrained by its dogmatism and eurocentrism that is another one problem it was conditioned by its inability to incorporate into its being the fundamental spiritual nature of human being and it could not accept the complementarity of consciousness in matter it was a closed system which became inevitably tyrannical inhuman and asuric it was in this context that the west challenged it. the entire cold war was the fight between the consumerism of the western communism of the russia and in this particular war one cannot say that the west had a moral upper hand unlike in the case of uh, fight against nazism the west had a semblance of a moral upper hand so sri arbindo actually supported it but in the case of uh, the fight against soviet union the west cannot actually consider itself as morally superior so um, west was the west of mk ultra if you go and search what is mk ultra you will find it very clearly they were the ones who did the tgg experiments on the black people then there was the honduras they were supporting every tin foil dictator in south america all their uh, human right violations the massive killing of uh, innocent women and children all in the name of fighting communism so this is the kind of best that won the cold war and the world as well as the russians they saw this not just as the fall of communism they also perceived deeply as the defeat of mother russia by the american west they didn't see the core core inner psychic being of russia didn't see this as liberation of russia from ussr from marxist dictatorship rather they saw this as russia being vanquished by the west the west also did the balkanization of russia of soviet empire so the ukraine became a separate nation remember ukraine also had its own dark memories Uh, particularly of the 1932-33 famine and the genocide that Stalinist Russia imposed on Ukraine. So, with all these bitter memories, 
Ukraine became a separate nation and Russia was there separate and Russia allowed herself to arise again under an oligarchy and this oligarchy was very mafia like and they were also had to uh, they were also they have created a network of arms uh, sales and arms market and it was through this that Russia was arising herself. This is where Sri Aurobindo's framework becomes important. In the framework of Sri Aurobindo, the arising again of a nation should have happened through connecting it to its spiritual core. Despite the fact that Russia had such a spiritual core, Russia had such wonderful mystics, despite that fact, Russia never allowed them. In fact, Russia's Orthodox Church and, Russia and the Soviet Union's Politburo they share a lot of commonalities. So the Russia that arose again was a Russia that was very similar to the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, as Sri Aurobindo pointed out in the case of uh, Germany, where the core aspects of Germany's mechanistic, egoistic elements getting transferred to the victors, the same way the liberty denying mechanisms of Soviet Union in the form of uh, subversive cults, uh, pacifism or uh, ecological rebellion or woke, they got transferred to the West and the West started using this against other nations. So in a way, if you look at what Sri Aurobindo has written in Human Cycle, and if you compare what is happening today in the case of uh, Ukraine and Russia, you will find a parallel. Now, the question that comes to us is, what should we do as Indians? Where do we stand? We stand, as far as Sri Aurobindo is concerned, the way Sri Aurobindo sees this, we stand understanding the entire process. By understanding this entire process, we know what Russia is doing wrong. And we know the hypocrisy of the West. We cannot endorse, as a civilization, we cannot endorse a vitalist national egoism of Russia creating an aggression on Ukraine. At the same time, we cannot support a NATO trying to lure Ukraine out of her own cultural womb, which is more close, which is closer to Russia. In fact, spiritually, Ukraine is closer to Russia than to the NATO countries. It is the economic and the military lure that is taking Ukraine towards these NATO countries. And how is Russia reacting? Russia is not reacting in a spiritual way. Russia should have built those bridges, should have strengthened its spiritual bridges with Ukraine. It couldn't do that because it was under oligarchy, because it was, it was basing its own power on arms sale and it was basing its own power on old methods of vitalism and materialism. Instead, had it used the spiritual bridges, the cultural bridges, then it could have taken Ukraine back. That hadn't happened. That had not happened. And in the case of India, we see the whole thing and we have a lot of lessons to learn. We have our neighbors. 
the neighbors who are being lured away from India, despite the cultural unity of those neighbors with us, whether it is Nepal, whether it is Bhutan, whether it is Sri Lanka, we see this, that these nations are lured away by the promise of the material and the promise of national egoism. India has to react through a combination of the physical, vital, and the spiritual, and connect to the spiritual core. This is what we learn from Sri Aurobindo's understanding of war and peace. In fact, in this particular aspect, I haven't gone into his essays of Gita because then he is discussing war at another level. Right now, I have taken this from the human cycle and his nationalist writings so that we can understand what is happening around us right now in the context of Sri Aurobindo. Thank you. Thank you, Sri Neil Kandanji, for giving us such clear insights into the nature of war and peace with reference to Sri Aurobindo's philosophy. You cited many examples from the global as well as the Indian contexts. You pointed out the problems with pacifism as well as the how religious experience manifest themselves and shape our capacity for wars and the will to any annihilate comes out from this religious experience. You also pointed out the contributions of Sri Aurobindo and his philosophy that wherever there is national egoism, there is going to be war. And you also put stress on how having the concept of Kshatriyas is very helpful in reducing the extent of wars and reducing uh, the amount of suffering to a great extent. So I would like to move on to the panel discussion. Let me introduce to the audience our panelists. We have Sri Govindji, who is the president of Sri Aurobindo Yoga Foundation of North America. He is an excellent scholar of yoga and a great devotee of Sri Aurobindo and the mother. We also have Sri Uday Aryaji, who is a teacher at Sri Aurobindo International Center for Education. After having worked in various capacities as an investment banker at Wall Street, he is now the co-founder of Blue Lotus Ventures. His areas of interest include art, music, poetry, history, and yoga. We have Sri Sriji Dattaji as a moderator for this event. He is a mentor and assistant professor at Rashtram School of Public Leadership, Rishihud University. His areas of interest include aesthetic philosophy, Alamkara Shastra, Sahitya, literary theory, comparative literature, comparative philosophy, bhakti, and Vedic studies. So with this, I invite Sriji Dattaji to take forward this webinar. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Am I audible? Yeah, yeah. Great. Namaskar to everyone who have joined us online. For me, it's a great pleasure to be moderating this panel discussion on inevitable wars and illusionary peace, Sri Aurobindo's realism, with two of our esteemed speakers. We gather here on this virtual platform of Vaichariki, organized by Sri Aurobindo Studies for Human Excellence at the Rashtram School of Public Leadership, Rishihud University, at a time when wars of various kinds, physical, psychological, civilizational, and various other subtle forms are raging on across battlefields and across time and space, and also inside of us at both individual and collective levels. 
I am acutely aware of the possible pitfalls of participating in a discussion on war and peace with no first-hand experience of a physical war of any kind whatsoever and having grown up in a time of relative peace in our country. Fortunately, I am participating in this panel discussion in the capacity of a moderator. I would be learning from the deliberations of our esteemed speakers, but also as a keen student of the vast body of Sri Aurobindo's works, which in itself is darshana retold for a new world and for a new audience. And with the hope that I, as well as you, will get to learn something profound from the deliberations of our esteemed panelists who have devoted to the subject at hand, deep thought and much consideration. Perhaps it would be pertinent to open this conversation with what Sri Aurobindo wrote in his foreword to the first edition of War and Self-Determination, a collection of his essays containing reflections on the extraordinary situations arising out of the First World War. In fact, Sri Aurobindo was writing the last of these essays in that collection only a few days after the formation of the League of Nations in 1920. Speaking of the characteristics of those times, Sri Aurobindo wrote, and I quote, the whole difficulty of the present situation turns upon the peculiar and critical character of the age in which we are living. It is a period of immense and rapid changes, so swift that few of us who live among them can hope to seize their whole burden or their inmost meaning or to form any safe estimate of their probable outcome. Great hopes are abroad, high and large ideals fill the view, enormous forces are in the field." Unquote. A reader of these words in the current times, more than a hundred years after Sri Aurobindo had written them, is likely to find them to be more than relevant for and characteristic of his own times. For who can deny the swiftness of the changes that are currently taking place all around us, as well as the great impact that these changes are inflicting upon our daily lives and on the world in general. The very fact that we have become quite accustomed to the way we have connected with each other virtually for a gathering of this kind today, this evening, is a testimony to the vast changes that have taken place in just the past two years. And despite peace being the all-pervasive and often official motto of international and intergovernmental bodies since the last World War, the incidents of the last two months alone in Northern Asia reveal that we are far from achieving stability and order of any uh, degree in the realm of international politics and international relations. This, in fact, brings to my mind Sri Aurobindo's words, once again from the same foreword by Sri Aurobindo that we have mentioned earlier, where, where he characterizes the League of Nations as, and I quote, remarkably ill-jointed, stumbling, and hesitating machine, unquote. Perhaps these words apply equally well for the international institution of the present day of which the League of Nations was a precursor. Nonetheless, 
Sri Aurobindo doesn't fail to provide us with a compass which will give us direction in this overwhelmingly chaotic world of ours. When he speaks of what he calls, and I quote again, the obvious but practically quite forgotten truth, unquote. And what is this truth? Sri Aurobindo tells us that, quote, the destiny of the human race in this age of crisis and revolution will depend much more on the spirit which we are than on the machinery we shall use, unquote. And with these opening remarks, I'd now like to invite comments and further deliberations from the esteemed panelists on the present bearing of this truth as articulated by Sri Aurobindo. Thank you. Over to you now, Udayji. Thank you. Uh, that was very well said, Rijit. And um, first, I would like to thank the Rashtram School for uh, inviting me for Sampadvai for asking me to be a panelist. And my own journey with this exploration of war started in 2009-10. And I was perturbed by what was happening around the world. And I said uh, to myself, maybe it is time to start uh, reading through every single word that uh, Sri Aurobindo may have said on the subject. And so I began to make my own uh, little compilation, a, a little study. And that was a fascinating journey because it took me through so many different perspectives and, and new insights as always. And um, that really uh, created, uh, like after every substantial deep dive into a topic, a very, very a different frame of mind and reference to understand myself, my own role in the world, little role in the world, every aspect it, it threw a substantial light on. So I would like to start uh, with something from uh, Savitri. There have been many wonderful uh, passages and references to this tendency in human nature but there's one that stands out uh, particularly uh, to me that I think may be relevant for today's exploration. These are just four lines. Sri Aurobindo says, War making not the sweet smiling calm of life, battle and rapine, ruin and massacre are still the fierce pastimes of man's warring tribes an idiot R destroys what centuries made. We might ask this question to ourselves, was the world at peace before Russia invaded Ukraine? Was it? If we go by conventional narratives, all was fine and dandy. But the question actually begs a follow-up. Uh, what do we mean by peace? If by peace we mean some absence of military conflict, then we may posit, sure, possible. But life itself is a state of war, I would argue. There is, in fact, no continued existence of life except by a constant self-feeding and devouring of other life. One of the most fascinating and original aphoristic for, uh, Greek philosophers, and Sri Aurobindo has taken special care to comment on his writings, Heraclitus, he talked about war as being the father of all things. And there was a deep insight in that. Even the Upanishads uh, refer to uh, a hunger that is death. 
which they said was the creator and master of this world. So even pre this, these last couple of months that we have seen an intense uh, re-examination of the subject of war, I would make the case that even in a state of peace, we actually have selfish feuds at the ideological level combined with a non-stop economic throat cutting. It is actually a state of war. But this is a sort of settled peace which humanity has come to accept as par for the course, almost normal. But it's again worth asking, is this a peace that is pregnant with war? Sri Aurobindo says, while man remains what he is, force, in spite of all idealisms and generous pacific hopes, must remain the ultimate arbiter and governor of his life and its possessor, the real ruler. He goes on further to make an even stronger statement that so long as war does not become psychologically impossible, it will remain, or if it were banished for a while, would return. He says war is very much a psychological necessity of man because what is within us must manifest itself outside. Somewhere else in a commentary on the Isha Upanishad, he says that, this is his paraphrasing of an idea, the sense that this is I and that is you, so long as the difference between I and you exists, hatred cannot cease, war cannot cease. So can there possibly be it impossible? Well, we only have to look at uh, the national armies that exist around the world to which Sri Aurobindo says, if they exist, the possibility, not just the possibility, but the certainty of war will exist along with them. I will pause here for now and uh, we will explore more of Sri Aurobindo's life and uh, the contexts which he gives to us to, to study this fantastic subject. Thank you, Deji, for summing up your thoughts, uh, your opening remarks. And uh, to my mind, the question that you have highlighted, uh, which is a very important question, is uh, what is really normative? Is it war that is normative or is it peace or is it uh, some kind of combination? Or in other words, uh, are war and peace inevitably intertwined with each other? So with these thoughts, I would like to go over to Govinji now and invite him to offer his opening remarks. Thank, thank you, Srijit. Thank you. Yeah, it is such a great privilege to be here, to be invited by the Rashtram School. I have such a great admiration for the uh, the institution as well as the initiatives that it has taken up very unique very pure very powerful uh, very much needed uh, so it's a great privilege so yeah so i think that uh, this is a very pertinent uh, topic uh, uh, that is uh, very relevant to everybody as we see in the news every day and we are in a very small corner of the world uh, there are just i think uh, less than 20 of us on uh, the call, what difference are we going to make <laughs> to the 
to the world situation, to Ukraine, to Russia, to United States, all these great big giant mammoths, behemoths were, as it is, as it were, wrestling on the world stage. What are we going to do? Well, we are here in the name of somebody who is very extraordinary, and that is Sri Aurobindo. And why it is so extraordinary and so unique to be here and uh, under his aegis, so to speak, is uh, that uh, Sri Aurobindo is one of those extremely rare and unique individuals in the history of humanity uh, that has, uh, in fact, uh, he's not just your ordinary Sant Mahatma or Rishi Muni or uh, Swami or Guru. If you look at his life, he has actually been one of the greatest warriors ever. And throughout his life, he has always fought battle after battle after battle. So even though he's known as a spiritual great luminary, he is fundamentally a great warrior. And that is, in fact, what drew me to Sri Aurobindo because I was tired of pacifism. <laughs> he had actually achieved this synthesis of the highest spiritual possibilities of man, along with the greatest practical dynamic capability to fight for its realization in the world in a very heroic way. It, it is something very interesting. Shravino comes from Bengal. And at a particular time of history, Bengal actually came up with certain very extraordinary individuals. You see Swami Vivekananda and his guru, uh, Krishna, who stands unparalleled uh, in the annals of spirituality. So great was his influence. You have somebody like uh, Subhash Chandra Bose, who I think in the modern age has uh, achieved uh, something of a uh, military miracle when uh, he had nothing behind him, no backing. He was not a military guy to begin with, but he actually created a military force to fight the British Empire. Then you had, as there is a photo even behind Srijit uh, of uh, Ravindranath Tagore, a genius by any measure in the cultural sphere whose outputs, whose works are so sublime and so wonderful that you don't even know, need to know his native language to really fall in love with uh, his uh, creation. Then you have somebody like who is not very well known, but whose actions are actually still impacting us very greatly, which is uh, uh, Shyam Prasad Mukherjee, who was probably the greatest political leader India produced, uh, but was snuffed out or crushed by Nehru. So he could not really achieve that uh, great uh, potential that he had. But you see, all of these four figures, they all came from Bengal. And they all exemplified four very different uh, great potentialities. And the amazing thing is that all these four potentialities are combined, summarized, and almost perfected in Shri You have the greatest spiritual achievements and uh, vision and work and consciousness. And then you have this great political, military and fighting spirit, which uh, Subhash Bose exemplified. Then you had a very pragmatic politician also, who always saw everything with a very clear eye and could execute certain very, very remarkable actions on the world stage. 
which nobody else could. So you see precursor of Shyam Prasad Mukherjee in that. And you have a very remarkable literary figure who imbued all his works with the highest inspiration. So here you see how he uh, summarizes even somebody like Rabindranath Tagore. So in one person, in one person, you have all of these four amazing attributes and aspects of human excellence being combined. So in that sense, Sri Aurobindo is to us like one of the heroes of the Mahabharata and the greatest heroes like Sri Krishna. Sri Krishna, if you see, he actually combines the highest spiritual potentiality of humanity with a very pragmatic politician, a very uh, powerful military person also, as well as a great uh, person who uh, came up with literary output like Bhagavad Gita, for example, although we attribute it to him, there is no doubt that there was a person like Sri Krishna who actually came up with that, or like Bhishma. So why Hindus in particular and Indians should really love Sri Aurobindo is if they want to see somebody from the time of the Mahabharata, who we thought that, you know, it's a, that these people don't really live anymore, that we can't really see any of the people like Bhishma or Sri Krishna. Sri Aurobindo is the person who actually shows that this is the kind of person that they were, and he actually exemplifies them in real life. So this is something that I would really like to emphasize for people who uh, are thinking about Sri Aurobindo or here in uh, considering, you know, how they should go forward, how to, how to really explain this wonderful <laughs> phenomenon that Sri Aurobindo is just a way to think about it, right? The other thing is just taking up from this uh, theme that Sri Aurobindo always fought in his life. Uh, he gave us this, he gave us this idea or really revived this idea of what I call the war, not just wars, but the war. And this war is something that is supposed to characterize all of human history. And this is, as uh, I think Srijit mentioned in his uh, intro, the war between uh, the forces of light and darkness, right? And you see this in all cultures, everywhere. And even in uh, the very beginning of our own uh, culture and tradition, which is the Veda, you see the, uh, the war between the forces of light and darkness, the forces, the Devas and the Dasyus. And uh, even in the Gita, uh, you see the war of the Mahabharata. Although on the surface, it looks like just a war between relatives, a war of succession. But it is interesting that in the Gita, Sri uh, Krishna does not really use that argument. He does not tell Arjuna that, look, uh, your brother is the real rightful uh, claimant to the throne and you have to fight uh, because otherwise he's not going to get it. So while normally people think that that was the reason of the Mahabharata war, the real justification for that war also is provided by Sri Krishna in the 16th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the Daivasura Sampad Vibhaga Yoga, where he clearly delineates that there are two opposing forces in this world, the Daivik or the divine and the Asuric or the Titanic. And that they are actually represented as types in humanity. And there are two extremely powerful and extraordinary forces which are in constant conflict. And that war is constantly going on. And it is at this level 
that Sri Aurobindo also fought the war. It is at this level that World War II was also fought because it was not something that was just an ordinary war. It was, in fact, a war between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And here, Sri Aurobindo actually gives us a very unique way of looking at this type of war. That essentially, it's not a war between absolutes. It's not a war between, at a human level, a war between absolute moral evil and absolute moral good. That on the whole, there is, there, there is one side which is in favor or uh, in, is amenable or works towards, directly or indirectly, consciously or unconsciously, works towards the further evolution of humanity uh, at a spiritual level and uh, at a spiritual, ethical, moral level. And another side which actually works to degrade it or to retard it or to bring it back or to draw it down. And this is how we can actually use this template to evaluate any kind of wars, any conflicts, not just physical wars. Because nowadays, wars actually don't take place mostly at the physical level. The greatest wars happen in the immaterial level. The ideological level is much more fierce, ferocious, and constant, let's say, than the uh, physical level. And if we try to evaluate the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine, it's very uh, interesting what emerges because the current narrative is that there is a very small nation, Ukraine which has been attacked and invaded and taken over by a much bigger nation, which is Russia. But is that the case? I think, as uh, Arvindji also pointed out, that you know, that, and this is not merely a question of these two nations, that essentially this is a war between two very big nations, militarily. What I would say is that there is a global hegemon, which is the United States which wants to say that I alone can invade other countries and nobody else can. Right? That's exactly what it's saying to everybody. And Russia, which is a regional hegemon, which is saying, look, this is my territory. This is my sphere of influence. And I'm going to assert my domination over this uh, area or region. So is it a war between two dissimilar people or two similar? And you can immediately see that it's basically the same kind of mentality and thinking and consciousness on both sides, right? One person is trying to basically fight for his domination of the world, and uh, the other side is trying to fight for his domination of a particular region. But the motivation, however much they would like to say, okay, I'm fighting for democracy or I'm fighting for freedom and all that kind of stuff, is plainly domination. So in this, uh, in this war, can we really say one side is good, one side is bad? It's very hard to say because the motive on both sides uh, is the same. Thankfully, I think that it is good in one sense that uh, we are in this kind of a war where it's just two bullies, so to speak, on both sides who are just fighting for their own ego identity, as uh, Arvindji was kind of saying when he was talking about, you know, how he, what he has read from Shirobindo kind of uh, was interpreted by him. So it's these two egoists, these two egos, world egos fighting with each other. Uh, because there is another kind of war, which I was kind of hinting about, which is this, the war, right? An interesting aspect is, uh, we are also currently involved in several wars. Like India, 
although on the physical level you may say we are fighting china but in fact our war with china is merely at the physical level right now even with the current conflict with united states and russia this is not the cold war this is not a war between a democratic and capitalist america versus a dictatorial and communist russia or ussr that war was at a different level and what is that level it is at the level of ideas so right now we have these two egoists fighting each other but they are fighting for the same idea of domination there there is no difference at the level of ideas if you see if you look at america also uh, it is not such a great place from a perspective of democracy their democracy has been irreparably damaged and in fact it's very hard to call it a democracy outside this stage because it is completely controlled by plutocrats by media and by all kinds of forces who have virtually made it impossible for the public to come out and vote and say okay, this is an expression of our will right the freedom of speech also is continuously being eroded in united states so to what extent is it different from russia it's very hard to say right so previously it was at the level of ideas that the war was being fought and how did this start and the most paradoxical thing here is that this whole concept of this war at the level of ideas has originated from the one figure that we associate with pacifism globally and that is the figure of buddha of siddhartha gautama you may say go in what are you saying how can you say that this war at the level of ideas has originated from buddha because buddha was the first person to my knowledge to declare himself to be the global messiah or messiah that he has come to save all of humanity not just a particular section of people but all of humanity and that's why everybody has to listen to him and follow his path and he is i would say if anybody we can say is a genuine messiah it is buddha anybody else we can say okay what is this guy is he really but buddha was because of his message his teachings were so noble and profound and great uh but he introduced this idea that i have come to save the whole world and so everybody has to follow my ideas now this this way of looking was very extraordinarily new for the world at the time because everybody was fractured and divided into their own spheres and their own localities and doing their own thing and here comes this man saying that i am the person who has come to save the world and everybody is saying and it is so extraordinary that at the birth also there is this story where people are saying that he is going to become a conqueror or a savior so even as a savior he still a much greater conqueror than he would have been at the physical level this idea then was transmuted by another phenomenon which happened few hundred years later which was the birth of christianity and if people want to see what is unique so unique about the birth of christianity its ideas there are a lot of novel ideas but the main idea which it contributed to the world is it took forward this concept of global messiah and turned it into a kind of supremacism so it took a logical second step it said not only am i here not only is jesus here to save everybody but he is the only person who is going to do so and everybody has to listen to him and those who don't are not just wrong but they are also bad 
this is something that the buddha did not he did not say okay if you don't come to me if you don't listen to me uh, if you don't follow me that you are bad right so this idea of messianic supremacism is the unique contribution of christianity to the world its most important contribution after this idea came into the world it has never left it so with christianity it spread like a wildfire on the basis of this idea that i have to fight at every level against the person who is not like me who is not with me who doesn't think like me who doesn't agree with me who doesn't follow me because christianity was born from merger of the jesus movement of judaism and the roman imperialism this messianic supremacy spread like wildfire in europe and destroyed everything in its path then a second version of christianity emerged 600 years later which we call islam and this version took the logical idea even a step further it said that not only are you bad but i have to fight against you until you are no more and this whole idea of perpetual or perennial jihad came and that idea has still is still with us and we are still fighting it without knowing what we are fighting we still think islam is merely a religion like any other religion but behind it is this idea of messianic school after that another form of christianity has come and that form we are calling marxism and if you see marxism is something that has killed so many people but they still act like the biggest angels right everywhere in fact as a paradox of how things have changed you know once it was democratic a capitalist america versus marxist uh, soviet union but today the things have changed completely because now america is under the influence of cultural marxism which is called wokeism which is coming in india also now while russia is actually against wokeism and actually putin makes it a point to point it out that i am against wokeism i am against cultural marxism so you see how things have changed completely but basically this is war at the level of ideas and we should be thankful that it is not happening right now because that would really lead to world destruction because then anybody pushing you know having his finger on the nuclear button can say yeah because the world is evil they are not listening to me i'm going to push the button and everybody is going to be destroyed so here i think that india has a very unique role to play because we have this truth that shrivindu has again revealed to us in a very powerful form and that can really help humanity but at the same time shrivindu is not a pacifist he is a fighter and a warrior we've got to keep our powder dry and we've got to be as strong as any person in the world because without might right cannot stand as it is right now thank you thank you govind ji for sharing these thoughts i'm sure that these have uh, provoked many other chains of thought questions in the minds of all of us who are participating here so something uh, that struck me as very interesting in your remarks is your uh, comparison of the ideological makeup of uh, both the usa and russia at this point in time if uh, that is the case then how does one make sense of what is happening uh, at the international relations uh, from an international relations point of view between these two countries and the the and, and the two you know sides which have allied themselves uh, along with these countries 
uh, we are essentially talking about the comparison uh, of similarity between uh, the ideological and the state of mind of these two countries, the psychological and ideological makeups of these two countries. And at the same time, there is conflict. So uh, it, how do we look at it using Sri Aurobindo's framework, uh, which has been invoked by Arvindanil Kandanji in his keynote address, as well as by both of you. So this is a question to you, Govindji, and maybe after that, uh, I will. I would like to invite Udayji to comment on the same. If I uh, rephrase the question, is it basically about how do we see the current conflict in light of what Shirovindo has revealed to us? Is that kind of like the question? Yes, uh, with the additional knowledge that the psychological as well as the ideological makeup of the two sides, the two warring sides are more or less the same because the yeah. same kind of psychological and civilizational factors are at play here. Yes, yes. So I think that uh, from Shrevindo's perspective, a lot can be said, right? But the main thing, I think from our perspective as Indians and as people who are actually awakened enough to be here and in this context, I think it is something that underlines what Sri Aurobindo has always, always, always stressed. And which is that we have to evolve. That all crises in humanity, whether it is COVID, whether it is uh, wars, any kind of crisis, really ultimately has one moral right now for us, which is that we have to evolve, we have to grow our consciousness. And we have to transcend our current limitations, which basically all of these crises are expressions of these limitations. Which Shyamandu is coming, with the mothers coming, they have given us such a comprehensive, detailed, and a complete package, so to speak, of all knowledge that we need to do this work. They are also available and ready even today in their consciousness. It's, I, don't, I don't think it's accurate in any way to say that they are here no more or that they are passed away because they are here much more than they were at any point of time. They are available to help us to do this work because ultimately the whole history of humanity is the history of this evolution that we are starting from total inconsciousness and we are evolving to superconsciousness. And what we are experiencing right now is an intermediate stage. As I think somebody said before that uh, we are a transitional being, human, human beings are transitional beings. So this is a transitional phase. So this is kind of like an interval between one part of the movie and another part. One part was a horror tragedy. And now what has happened is that this movie is still going on, but we have the option to now move to the other to the other side where harmony, beauty, light, truth, these things can manifest in their full plenitude. Because we look around ourselves. I mean, Ukraine, if you just walk outside of your door, what do you see? You see like happiness, you see like prosperity, you see like uh, great uh, evolution around us. We see the exact opposite, even in ordinary life around us. In India itself, which is so mired in uh, corruption and self-forgetfulness today. 
the greatest country with the greatest mission in the world so this is at the level of which i think we have to really participate that really we work on ourselves and we elevate ourselves we evolve ourselves that i think is the real message behind all crises including this one otherwise in my opinion at least since as you very well pointed out series that they are the same kind of you know there's the same person on both sides right it's not pandavas and kauravas it's basically two kind of kauravas you know what is the difference really right this story is going to keep continuing if today it's russia tomorrow it will be china right uh, and united states as it is has a license to invade anybody at any time it will just basically just torpedo your currency and you know bring about a famine in your nation and destroy millions of people and still say i'm doing it for democracy so that is i i would have to and i would like to invite uday to probably give a much more interesting answer yes definitely uday ji your thoughts on the question of uh, clash of ideologies and civilizations i think it boils down to a choice i mean i uh, of course very much in agreement with uh, govin that uh, it's it's a call for an aspiration every country every at the level of the individual also to ask what are we here for what's the point of existence what really are you here for it's not for amazon two day delivery right so is there some higher motive to life than uh, than what we ordinarily see around us if for america the choice is crucial because it's it's a it's this much we can see that it's a great uh, it's a great power in obvious decline and uh, that has uh, many ramifications for the world because clearly at this time it's making very poor choices in terms of where it has to ask itself what is what is the genius what is what is my genius what is my country's purpose what is the highest aspiration i could serve for humanity if it is able to answer these questions and uh, answer them in the light of the natural strengths and abilities it possesses so much could come out of uh, every crisis and uh, in the past it has shown uh, the possibilities are tremendous uh, if it acts well of course uh, since the last uh, few decades we have seen uh, america descend deeply into uh, cultural marxism which is you know infected throughout its uh, university system judicial system uh, social so every every aspect of life is uh, media there is there is no part which is uh, left free and um, i think that poses significant challenges for answering that question and on the other side <laughs> very interestingly as as uh, govind alluded to Russia while under uh, a sort of a gangster type system has a dictatorial leader who is at least clear on this issue that this type of uh, nation hating self alienating ideology that supports anarchy at the cost of everything this this will not work in in russia and he's he's using his iron fist to demonstrate that uh, with no uncertain with no uncertainty left on the table that it will be um, you will face uh, consequences uh, right up and including life uh, for it so you know this also relates to the you know question of every uh, not just russia not just ukraine or america as you know 
between regional versus uh, global hegemon uh, but but you know um, a much more difficult tyrant uh, on the global stage which is uh, china right all these uh, with, with such tremendous difficulties that we that we see in india especially given that the purpose that we have to fulfill is so significant for humanity we have to be you know naturally very very careful what path we choose and you know to to actually not align ourselves is very wise very strategic very thoughtful and it should continue to be that way come hell come fire because these there is literally no no world power at present who has any moral standing to lecture india of all countries on on what or how it should behave or not behave and india has something which it it is a gift to the world it's the gift of spiritual and, and illumination which may take a while to unfold but it's a gift that has to be protected and if if that means you know standing and becoming or growing up into a mature nation in the modern age despite all the all the criticism that it it will draw uh, because it's expected to be subservient and you know docile and sweet and uh, it's it's doing the opposite of that so it it's this much is also clear even to small countries like ukraine that you have to look out for yourself so there is really no friend in this in this world and because we have not evolved yet collectively as a society we have not evolved as human as individuals we have barely evolved so of course as nation states there is and this relates to uh, one of the questions on the panel in regards to disarmament should we have any possibility of disarmament on the table i think um my my humble answer is it's it would be uh, suicidal at this point to for any country to consider seriously a possibility of disarmament because uh, there i mean even even japan which uh, renounced uh, nuclear and and in a sense tried to distance itself from using excessive force and power and it had it was one of the most supremely organized nations in the world sri arbindo refers to both germany and japan as having unparalleled uh, abilities in efficiency and organization if it could as uh, arvind ji uh, pointed out earlier in the keynote a small country like japan actually annihilated the strength of russia and russia has 12 time zones it's a massive even today that's possible for for a country like japan to do israel which is a tiny you can't bear you i mean most of us will will be uh, finding it difficult to locate israel on a on a global on on a globe one of the spinning globes but that little country will have and has the capacity to annihilate the entire middle east region if it could no country in the middle east would dare lift a finger against israel seriously speaking but the point behind this is disarmament or the idea of uh, national armies uh, stacking up we have not matured yet uh, as a as a collective we deserve what we get in a sense so we we have to keep these national armies we have to have well trained armies we have to have the best absolute best of uh, technology to to deal with every possible strategic challenge that we will face because we will have no friends when when the time comes and you know one other reference which i would like to bring up is the world war 2 reference that's a very important world event to to keep in context because you know and in i think i have uh, let me uh, bring up this 
Amal Kiran was one of the disciples of uh, Sri Aurobindo himself, an author of 45 to 50 books in va- on various subjects. Very, very uh, interesting author. And uh, he wrote in 1950, 51, uh, uh, a whole series of articles in the journal called Mother India. And the, the what's special about this particular book, it's called India and the World Scene, is that uh, every one of the articles that got published in Mother India by Amal Kiran was actually approved for publication personally by Sri Aurobindo. So that's that's really significant. And Amal Kiran himself said that I had no knowledge of world affairs. I was I had I had no special abilities or powers. It was it was Sri Aurobindo who trained me entirely. I had zero gifts in this regard. I had every insight that I have had, every new opening that I've had has come through because of uh, the gifts of Sri Aurobindo. So in one of his um, articles, he refers to uh, this idea. He says, it would be an error to regard all enemies of Hitler as having been children of light. Despite the sorry, he says the future must learn to see behind the masks and identify in spite of deceptive colors, the face of evil by a combination of four signs. So here he's listing four signs. And the first one is the denial of God and of the divine spark in the human. So as we come across these ideas, try to think of you know, the countries or the, the national egos at present, which are manifesting these types of traits. And these are extremely important traits for the future of the world, world's evolution, because India is to lead, India's purpose is to lead the world in this regard. So the first of these signs, uh, which Amal Kiran refers to is the denial of God and of the divine spark in the human. Think of the countries that uh, encourage this. Second, the totalitarian freedom stifling grip on the individual's mind and body. At this point, it's not just China that's doing this. Even America is descending towards this especially on the mind, the totalitarian freedom stifling grip on the individual's mind. It's a very unhealthy development to have this type of, you must accept uh, this uh, new way of looking at the world. And if, if not, you will be ostracized. You could even lose your job. We will punish you. We will t- write about you online. This is a very, very unhealthy uh, development and doesn't allow for a free outpouring of the individual's personality. So that's the second one. The third is the acceptance of violence as basic to self-expression. Again, there are countries which evince this nakedly and it is again seen as par for the course, perfectly okay. Where are the psychological conditions for peace being created if this exists? And fourth, the conspiracy to spread by all available means, discontent and disorder in every country whose government pursues the ideal of political democracy. So there are obviously in the, in the realm and context of uh, social media, a lot is being done to spread this type of uh, discontent and uh, disorder. And these are games that are being played uh, through various channels. It's not just war is not just, you know, tankers and aircraft. It's also taking off the electricity grid. It's also taking off the various networks which are essential for a country's food supply. So many different types of war can manifest in today's world. So these, for me, this is interesting to to note that we in India have the challenges of having to deal with 
wonderful neighbors, as we are all aware, and they all come with great challenges. Um, and uh, war, in that sense, is uh, very much existent for the foreseeable future as a possibility because we we just have to we haven't done enough work on ourselves. And so, even though you know, as as Govin mentioned in the beginning, that we're only you know a dozen or more people at present on this call, but the every single one of us is having an important role to to play on self conquest more than any other type of conquest which war glorifies and Hollywood or Bollywood glorifies it is self conquest which should be should be actually which should be able to return to that as a fundamental idea how much of ourselves have we conquered because we are full of contradictions we are full of our own all egoisms we we are perfectly able to observe in ourselves as well so i would pause there indeed it's interesting that you mention in, in addition to uh, individuals egos uh, the national egos and we have had mentions of national jingoism in in uh, similar contexts so what i was thinking is if uh, both of you could uh, deliberate uh, or uh, think loud on uh, the question of nationalism so uh, as we have seen that uh, there have been attempts uh, in uh, the recent past in um, you know the last three decades or so or four decades or so by theorists, political theorists like uh, Benedict Anderson, uh, who have tried to define nationalism in a certain way uh, by saying that it is uh, nothing but an imagined community and uh, uh, using that uh, definition or you know definitions which are similar to uh, Anderson's. Indian uh, scholars, Indian uh, intelligentsia uh, have tried to also define the nationalism of uh, Bunkim Chandru, uh, which had uh, indeed inspired Bunkim, uh, it had uh, inspired Sri Aurobindo to a great extent, uh, because uh, a lot of uh, what goes into uh, Sri Aurobindo and Barindro's uh, Bhavani Mandir is actually coming from uh, the Anandamath of Bunkim Chandru. So when we see in, in the scholarship and outpourings of uh, these uh, intellectuals, that the nationalism of India is also a kind of jingoism and uh, a collective expression of the majority's uh, ego. How do we, uh, you know, correct that discourse and how do we bring into light uh, what India's, India's nationalism really is, what are its real inspirations? This is an open question to both of you. And also, if I may add, uh, Aravinda Nilakandanji, I hope he is still connected with us. I would like all of you to, uh, you know, offer your thoughts in this regard. Uh, maybe starting with Aravinda, I can see him now. Sri Aurobindo's nationalism, if you can use the word nationalism, Sri Aurobindo's nationalism is qualitatively different from the nation-state nationalism of uh, the Western uh, countries, Western civilization. Unfortunately, what is happening is that uh, Sri Aurobindo or uh, even Bangim Chandra Chatterjee and Swami Vivekananda, if you see all these people's, all these uh, seeds nationalism, concept of nation, it is based on an organic principle called unity in diversity. Whereas in the case of the West, 
the nation state is essentially a Cartesian concept. It is based on the concept of, uh, it is either it is mechanistic, where it is even coming close to organic, it is based on one blood or one language, it is based on one ethnicity. In India, it is entirely based on diversity. So if you go through all the works of Sri Aurobindo, you will find one very important thing. It is that he celebrates diversity. For example, when he talks about the Indian culture, he tells that the, a Christian doesn't have to cease to be a Christian. A Muslim, he need not cease to be a Muslim. We can come together, keeping our individual identities, but creating this unity in diversity in a very organic way. This is an organic conception which goes back to the Vedic times itself. Interestingly, this particular concept of unity in diversity, which forms the basic bedrock of uh, India's nationalism, has been recognized by not only Sri Aurobindo, not only Bangam Chandra Chatterjee and Swami Vivekananda, also by Dr. Ambedkar and even Jawaharlal Nehru. So all the founding fathers of modern Indian state and uh, the trinity of the modern Indian state that is officially given to us by the establishment of Gandhi, Nehru, and Ambedkar, despite the fact that uh, they are being used by certain people, even they agree upon this. This is axiomatic, that this unity in diversity. So even if Indian nationalism wants to become something like the Western national model, the nation state model, it cannot. It cannot become that. Naturally, it will stop itself from becoming that. You, you read all the writings of Sri Aurobindo, you will never find a single word of hatred towards another ethnicity, the non-Indian ethnicity. Whereas, in the case of any Western nation-state uh, builder, you will find this hatred. They would have surpassed it, they would have uh, overcome it, they would have outgrown it, but it would be there fundamentally. In Sri Aurobindo, it won't be there. This is the difference. Here it is organic, here it is diversity-filled, whereas there it is Cartesian, it is uh, monoculture. That is the difference. Govindji, can we have your comments on the question of decluttering the uh, discourse on nationalism in the Indian context? Sure, but I just saw Uday unmute himself. I'm really curious to hear what Uday has to say. <laughs> no, and it's just a short thing. Uh, sure, please go ahead. It's, it's just a very short thing, and I, 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 I you will probably say something. Uh, more interesting. I just wanted to say that to uh, add to Arvind Arvindji's point that India will have always and has exhibited the ability to auto-correct, even if there are ex even if there are excesses. And you know, on online we could say you know certain sections of the Hindu so-called right uh, are exhibiting uh, jingoism. There will always be autocorrective mechanisms inbuilt into India's structure, that which which we, we should not go down the Western route of starting to put laws in place because these are these laws are actually antithetical to India's nature and spirit. So we should sort of let let what exists in man come forth uh, and uh, manifest itself freely because freedom is essential in India. The suppression of freedom is very dangerous. And to the extent that uh, time allows for corrections to take place, I feel that we should just let things be because our idea of, of nationalism is actually Sanatan Dharma. 
and we we go well beyond what the crude ideas of nationalism that exist in the modern world and for un understandably uh, for from the european point of view or american point of view they are almost allergic to this word nationalism and their experience of it is vastly different from ours and our psychological makeup is different we have no reason to subscribe to their framework of what is okay acceptable not acceptable if we have a nationalistic tendency within our societies we should let it be as is manifest freely because if there are excesses they will at some point auto correct that's all i just wanted to add ovinji your thoughts yeah 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 india's consciousness is different we however much we are ordinary humans uh, because of the thousands of years of continuous practice of sadhana and uh, self elevation which is unique to our country uh, as an unbroken chain even today it is given a completely different consciousness it's a living country it has a soul not just something that it has but it's actually on the surface india's soul is actually on the surface it, and it's not a country like others in fact the one characteristic quality that uh, one sees in india and indians which is not seen anywhere else is humility and this is not the fake humility of somebody who is trying to appear humble humble but the humility of somebody who actually sees the oneness and the beauty and diversity almost innately in everybody and everything you love everybody and you appreciate everybody that is the natural instinct that our ancestors and forefathers have given us because of their uh, sadhana and their efforts so these people don't understand uh, alpha or omega <laughs> they don't understand anything about india at all and my advice to indians as somebody who has lived outside of india for more than 30 years now is just ignore everybody you the beauty of india is so wonderful it is so extraordinary and most people they just judge by external appearances i keep asking people like if there is a very rich person a very powerful person uh, who has lot of possessions and is very mighty does that make that person a good person automatically no in fact living in the world as we do today if there is a very rich person a very powerful person the first thought that comes to mind is that what has this guy done which is wrong or uh, ulta sulta as we say or something that is uh, not good which has brought him to this stage because almost there is almost this feeling or this idea that you know do you have to kind of uh, sacrifice a lot of your uh, goodness your morality your ethics and your principles to get to that place and that is true for nations also we we indians constantly make the mistake we think that these other countries just because they are rich just because they are powerful just because they have like these iphones and ipads and all these uh, rockets and all that that makes them superior to us it does not it in fact does not in any way whatsoever you know so their nationalism as uh, uday narvinji actually very clearly pointed out is completely different from what india's nationalism because india as a nation is something completely different would you say that these observations hold true even at the face of the rapid urbanization and a certain kind of vulgarization of india's culture looking at the yes, yeah. uh, political as well as uh, you know popular culture in india today 
Yeah, because eternal India cannot be killed. It's always going to be there. Either it will go under the surface, but you cannot destroy it. It's like the sun going behind the clouds. I think this is an image Shravindu has also used. That it has to come out. You know, even if the clouds come in between, it has to come out. So India's day is rapidly approaching. And it, it is inevitable. It's only a question of how fast, how rapidly, right? Uh, and as far as unification is concerned, so, and whether war actually plays a part in that, uh, there is a, a, another very extraordinary contribution of Shirovindo, which I, I don't think is very well known, is how he has revealed to us that uh, Sri Krishna was in fact one of the first nationalists of India. Because if you see, uh, and again, this is something that comes only when you uh, don't just read the Mahabharata, but you step back and you absorb it, and then you look at it as a whole, and then you try to figure out the depths uh, of what is there hidden behind just the surface. And Sri has done this beautifully in everything that he has done, right? So which Krishna, you see, what is his emphasis? What is his effort that he just doesn't want to Establish dharma on the the throne of Hastinapur. Uh, his main goal actually is after that, where he says, you know, that uh, you know, Yudhishthira, now that you are on the throne, you should go out and conquer the whole of India, right? With the I think the Rajshuhi Yagya or the Ashwamedhi Yagya. So even then, Sri uh, Krishna was very clear that he wanted a united, strong, powerful, dharmic, enlightened India. That is what he wanted. And he did not hesitate from using war as a means to achieve it. He did not hesitate to use even Brahmasras. But how did he do it? He did not just go and drop bombs on people saying, oh, I am the big Dada and everybody has to listen to me. If you see all the wars that Sri Krishna fought, all the wars that he supported, all the people who were conquered were kept intact. And their lineage also was kept in all the kings that Sri Krishna defeated. Once he defeats them, he does not say that, look, I am the big guy, I am the boss now, this country belongs to me. He actually leaves it to the descendants of the person. Like, even I think when he fights uh, Jarasan, his greatest uh, uh, foe, after he defeats Jarasan, he doesn't stay and say, okay, you know, Magad is mine and I am the, you know, big kahuna here and everybody has to just bow and scrape to me. He gives it to Jarasan's son. And you see this repeating throughout. And so the kind of conquest and the kind of war that, she, uh, that India has practiced, that Sri Krishna has, in one sense, almost uh, symbolized, is actually a very humanistic one, where you're not fighting to annihilate, you're not fighting to dominate, but you're fighting to synthesize, integrate, and unite. So that is actually something that's very extraordinary uh, that we find even in the life of Sri Krishna and Sri has actually kind of revealed that to us. Again, I think it all comes down to at what consciousness you are, you're, at, at which you are actually playing, let's say, right? If you're at a low consciousness, as uh, Arvindji was pointing out, at physical vital, even if you're at a mental consciousness, you can just, you can bring about a huge destruction. But India's consciousness, the consciousness of Indians in general, and the best of Indians, their consciousness has been so deep, so vast, and so high, that even war has been sublimated. And the very concept of war in the service of nationalism also has been sublimated. People say that, oh, when you were fighting Pakistan, uh, you captured 100,000 of their soldiers. Why didn't you just kill them? 
it's not in the consciousness of india to do something you know pakistan will do that to you pakistan will do that to you because its consciousness it is as a very crude level very very low level but you cannot do that because your consciousness is completely interesting uh, and uh, uh, what's significant is that you mention weapons astra like brahmastra and while going over some of the questions in the comment box by uh, lopa mukherjee and ahuti that question of weaponization disarmament these things come up so what i would like again as an open question thrown at all three of you uh, to deliberate upon is uh, the issue of uh, sacralization of weapons which is unique to some of the indigenous cultures of the world and especially in india where we you know uh, consider weapons as sacred and uh, there are unique uh, you know methods rituals uh, of worshiping uh, the weapon uh, we have uh, you know in the shakti tradition the uh, worshiping of weapon in the form of ayudha puja or uh, during durga puja in bengal it's, it's quite ubiquitous so how do you think uh, this this concept of sacralization of weaponry throws a unique perspective into the indian mind uh, when it comes to war uh, and you know protection uh, if we are speaking in terms of peacekeeping etc so can we start with uday ji uh, i would i would uh, sure but uh, i think arvind ji wanted to add something to the previous point arvind ji please uh, go ahead talking about nationalism one important question that comes again and again is the question of uh, agandabar because sri arbindo very explicitly said that this uh, partition would go and india and the pakistan would come back again together and people have been asking how is it possible it is a kind of an expansionist military fantasy that we are talking about when we talk about agandabar so what sri arbindo points out is that we can actually unite two divided nations again through spiritual strength is it possible is it even possible the answer comes around 1985 when we create this sarc the south asian countries coming together for regional cooperation and then recently the present government narendra modi he he launches a satellite that connects digitally all the sarc nations so this is the kind of cooperative unity that forms between the nations at one level and then slowly this organic unity starts create getting created see the difference i would like to draw a difference here we have parallel here you have trump trump was actually an american nationalist and he was trying to build walls around despite the fact that the mexicans are not going to change the religious demography of uh, united states but here we have the problem of the religious demography getting changed despite that fact we are not building walls rather we are building digital bridges and this is the nationalism the nature of nationalism in india here is a nationalist prime minister who is building digital bridges across the nations which have the same cultural matrix whereas there despite the fact that you have the same religion you are building bridges this is the difference between nationalism in india and nationalism in the west excellent point very very relevant very relevant so srijit you had uh, in in response to the previous um, question which you had uh, made and i think it was in regards to 
Lopa's thing, uh, observation about the individual. Yeah, only tangentially though. Uh, actually, I was uh, inviting all of you to comment on the aspect of regarding weapons uh, as sacred in the Indian culture and specifically in the Hindu Sanatana Dharma and how it relates to or rather how it throws a unique kind of perspective into the psychology of the Hindu uh, uh, populace. So uh, in my understanding, uh, this is there's a very, very uh, straightforward and as well as profound reason for this is that the weapon itself is meant to help execute your fulfillment your role of dharma in in the capacity that you have envisioned so if you are acting in your highest aspiration in a kshatriya type capacity the weapon is the instrument through which you are acting in your highest and so naturally because it is an instrument it will be considered sacred be by default consider everything sacred in any case but something which is helping you fulfill your role and purpose of course, will have the, a very, very high place and naturally will, will be worshipped as well. Simultaneously, there are also dangers associated with these weaponries, which are also well known to the Indian mind because, and even the, the mother refers to this, that weapons, guns, for example, contain within themselves the consciousness of death. This is a very important point that is lost on a materialistic civilization like the United States, predominantly, generally speaking which does not understand this key idea that if you have something which contains the consciousness of death sitting around in your home, it is a recipe for disaster because by and by and large, we are not trained to handle that type of consciousness. Mistakes will happen. Errors in judgment will happen. And naturally, it's, it's a resorting to a very crude animal, savage mind that feels that the need to express itself through these weaponries to resolve matters. And the clinging also of, for example, the supposedly the most advanced nation on the planet, the clinging through a constitution, again, which cannot be changed forever because it's held sacred beyond belief. The clinging of that is also a demonstration of a certain unwillingness to progress beyond early savage man. You cannot actually resolve your issues through other ways than by finishing off the other. The uh, supremacy which uh, Govind had alluded to earlier Right? It's either my way or the highway, uh, my truth, and only my truth can exist. This is fundamentally the, the challenge. And weaponry is used to emphasize that right, so to speak. Again, this is a this brings into that, na- that, uh, that contrast in the Indian sense. What is a right? right? Are rights and duties the same? Are, is, 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 where is the concept of uh, a dharma in a, in a modern world outside of India? So that's where I would uh, pause and uh, invite uh, the others to also throw their light into this. Yeah, and just on the topic of weapons, uh, if we see that uh, these weapons were not used very frequently, right? Uh, God always has these weapons, but he's very, very, uh, very miserly almost in their use. He doesn't use them. Uh, just to go about his daily work, so to speak. There are exceptions to the rule. And this is something I think that needs to be, uh, I think, emphasized. They are there for protection. They are not there for destruction or they are not there for uh, killing so much as saving. Uh, And I think this is what we find even in our uh, 
you know, stories and you know, uh, legends and our traditions uh, that generally you see that uh, the divine actually when he manifests uh, and when he fights uh, and when he uses these weapons, this is only because the, uh, as the Gita says, you know, that the weight of Adharma has become so unbearable that at that point there is no other option. Uh, that the divine then has to manifest and then fight the war. Like even if we see the story of Prahlad, which is so near and dear to everybody's hearts, you know, people think that Prahlad just called to Narayan and Narayan just came and saved him. But if you see the story, it's actually not that case. Uh, Prahlad has to go through atrocity after atrocity, suffering after suffering. And not just that, he actually is a symbol for all the other people in humanity who have to go through all of that with him. Uh, under the uh, iron fist of Hiranyakashipu, and at the very end, Narasimha appears and quickly, within the span of few minutes, he finishes his task and everybody is saved. So there is a great reticence in Hindus, among Hindus, to use violence and force. But at the same time, we have always recognized that given the environment in which you live, that there is no other option also. You have to have, you have to be not just powerful, but as far as possible, the most powerful in terms of weapons. Because uh, even today, if you see, if there was another country, let's imagine if India was in the place of America. I don't think that you would have had so many wars of regime changes and so much destruction and so much raining of bombs on other countries. You would not have had. It's a tragedy that a country like America has all these weapons and India does not. It is India that should have it because India would not do this kind of stuff. I mean, even once I think when we tried to intervene in Sri Lanka, we did a good job of it, you know. So the best should be the strongest. And that's why I think that we should strive to arm ourselves to the teeth while maintaining our consciousness. And that's not going to change. I don't think it's going to change with India that our consciousness uh, that we have really earned by centuries of this tapasya. It's ever going to really change, you know. And the divine grace is certainly there with us. So, you know, whatever any crisis, etc., will come. Uh, I don't think that uh, India will be destroyed or anything of that sort. Right? But, but again, I think that the best has to be the strongest also. Thank you, Kovinji. Arvindanji, quickly, your comments on the uh, question of weapons and their treatment as sacred objects. Actually, weapons, when you talk about weapons in, in South India, I don't know whether this custom is also there in North India. We, we have an Aida Puja, Navaratri. We keep all our uh, tools before the goddess and we consider these tools as sacred. For a student, it may be the book. For, uh, for a farmer, it will be the plow. And for a, a policeman, it will be the rifle. So these weapons are just a special class of tools. And the tools are seen in Indian culture as the extension of consciousness. So they embody the creative consciousness of uh, human beings. They are a kind of, uh, in the words of Richard Dawkins, it may be extended phenotype. For us, it is the goddess herself who is residing in this uh, manifestation of our extended consciousness. Hence, we consider them as divine. And because we consider them as divine, when they are weapons that can kill, we use them with utmost restraint. And Mahabharata gives a wonderful uh, picturization of this particular principle when 
Aswatthama and Arjuna, they both unleash Pasupadastra, which has the potential to destroy the entire world. It is only Arjuna who has the capacity to withdraw the weapon. So you should have the capacity to control the weapon from unleashing the destruction. It was the sin of the inability to control this weapon that gives Aswatthama the curse of being an undead person for all his life. So this is the principle in Indian culture about the weapons. The weapons are sacred and because the weapons or the tools are sacred, you always have to use them with utmost respect and utmost restraint. And as Udayji said properly, very clearly, Udayji said, they are the weapons and tools of Dharma. They are the embodiment of Dharma. So using them for Adharma would be the greatest sin on us. That is the cultural constraint on us. Thank you. So since the question of uh, right and wrong and the issues of dharma and adharma uh, have uh, come up and uh, i can see uh, a question in the comment box from one of our participants deepak ayer uh, who's asking is it dharma for india to be quiet about tibet and the uyghurs uh, so if you would like to take that question up I think, look, I, I have also felt really bad about what's happening in what has happened already in Tibet. Uh, it was a very, very significant loss. But at the same time, we are not the type to actually go about doing protests at any forum, international or national, because maybe rightly or wrongly, we can easily see the futility of these brandishings of or virtue signaling of what is right and what is wrong and clearly at some point uh, china will have to pay the price psychologically for what it has done and is doing uh, it may not be a price that will be enforced through a military conflict or, or we might not see justice in the way we expect naturally to see justice as if there might come a magical day when certain members of PRC go to jail publicly. I, this type of thing will not uh, manifest is my feeling. But surely um, the violence, cultural, psychological, and of course, physical violence that has been inflicted on Tibet and the Tibetans is really without parallel at an international, in an international sense, visibly, very, very clearly for, for the entire world. And because the, the, the possibility of doing business has been so strong, really no country has uh, been able to stand up. And even today, supply chains are largely controlled by China. So if you have to protest, if any country, even if the world's superpower has to quote-unquote protest or lodge a protest at the WTO, how far can it go when you are for existence, for your dollar stores dependent on, on China? So they have, they have a different problem, different set of problems to solve on, on their end. This, this is the, the Americans. So whether China will pay the price and should India keep quiet or not, I think we have uh, the much larger challenge to deal with, which is what is China's strategy in Asia and in, in India specifically? And they have already encircled parts of Nepal, parts of Sri Lanka. Arvindji has studied this uh, and uh, written about this uh, in, in different ways or even spoken about this. There are dangers, really massive civilizational threats and dangers to India especially from this uh, new, bold and emboldened uh, Nazi-like state which PRC represents. A very, very dangerous sign for humanity that it is being tolerated and 
uh, accepted because they provide so much of cheap labor and cheap goods to the world. Cheap labor part has thankfully reduced uh, somewhat, but cheap goods is still true. And the, the, it's so lucrative. And, and Sri Aurobindo even speaks about this uh, in the early 20th century, that if there will come a day when Europe's markets will be flooded by cheap Chinese products. What will happen to European industry? What will happen to the world's industry at present? China is a superpower in that sense. There's no doubt uh, about it. But there are real risks from its vision of the future. And we have to be cognizant of the risks from that because, you know, virtue signaling on issues like Tibet and, and Uyghur, I feel, uh, will not join uh, or will not take us too far. We have to hedge ourselves, protect ourselves and, um, and plan for the worst because China at present does not even see India as a significant enough threat. Its, its current aim is global domination. It wants to supersede America, or at least that's the vision statement they have uh, put before them. So India is like noise, and it will it will it will crush. Uh, it will try and crush uh, from its uh, hacking armies, from its other economic forces, uh, Indian developments when the time comes. But it does not even see it as a three three trillion dollar economy compared to whatever its you know fudged economy figures are. It will not even see India as a serious threat at this point, but I feel that you know we have a much bigger risk to deal with uh, on on that front. So that's that's all. Yes. Any other uh, remarks or uh, responses to this particular question, Arvindaji Govindji? Yeah, I think that uh, definitely one thing is clear that we already are paying the price, as they <laughs> listed, of our silence in the past. You know, when uh, the uh, Tibetan invasion actually happened. Uh, that was the time, and I believe uh, there are articles by, uh, I think, Amal Kiramur, which uh, state, I think, Shrivindu's kind of point of view that uh, we should have actually, you know, gotten down into the uh, battlefield at that point and just used or some alliances, uh, you know, outside of India to make this an international issue and to fight for Tibet's freedom. And he was extremely prescient because if, imagine if Tibet was still free, we would not have had 99% of the problems like with China uh, that we are having today. So there is also something we said about being extremely quick on the draw. When you know that you have an adversary and he is coming for you uh, and going to uh, do everything possible to make your life miserable, if not destroy you completely, then you have to essentially quickly just make sure that the threat is neutralized. And that could have been done way back, but now we have to just uh, wait and see what happens. Because again, as there was pointing out, China seems to be in such an unassailable position. But things change. America seemed to be in an unassailable position and then COVID came and now America is not in such an unassailable position. It's, uh, it seems to be in a very, very vulnerable position from inside. So things can change uh, what we have to do, I think, as uh, you know, to really become, because India itself has so many problems. Uh, we are, the main thing we have to do is recover our own sense of self. That is the main thing we have to do. And stop being this self-forgetful and very, very diffident uh, and apologetic nation, because India is something that is so unique, so special, so beautiful. And Sri Aurobindo always, always, always emphasized that, uh, I mean, he was a lover of India more than anything else. 
throughout his life. And one of the things he really wanted Indians to do is to be extremely self-aware who they are, how special they are, how unique they are, and how they have to fulfill this mission for the world, you know, for the sake of the world. Uh, and it's a divine responsibility that we have been given. So that's something that we should do as soon as we can. And then we'll be able to do so much. We'll be able to do so much. Arvindanji, your response? Just a small point. Uh, it is that uh, perhaps we can start by creating, we are the last standing pagan natural religion based civilization in the world. And we are seeing right now, in, before our eyes, uh, people, not only the Tibetans, but also the Yasidis getting destroyed right in front of our eyes. And small, small ethnic groups, religious groups, pagan groups getting destroyed throughout the world. What India can do actually is it can commission a freedom of religion report for the natural religious groups in the world, like the Native Americans. An Indian group can go, an Indian government commissioned group can go to United States and they can study the freedom of religion that is allowed there for the Native American groups and bring out a report. We can start doing that. We can start doing a report on Yasidis, on Tibetans, and we can publish it every year. That would be, I think, a proper starting point to fulfill this civilizational role that India has, the unique civilizational role that India has. Thank you. I think uh, I will take one last question from uh, our participants. Uh, Lupa Mukherjee uh, raises the question of uh, gun ownership by individuals, by citizens, and uh, the legitimacy uh, and uh, the consequences of uh, um, a sort of uh, weaponization of the citizens of a country. So I think I would like to go across to Govindji and uh, ask your opinion because uh, you are located in the US where this is a major issue uh, and a debate. So now what are your thoughts on uh, the ownership of guns by individuals either in the US or in India? Uh, it is an expression of the consciousness at the level of which these people are. It's vital, mental and physical. Uh, there is very little element of the soul and spirit. They have a people that have uh, arisen in the very womb of revolution and rebellion. And this has left a very, very deep mark on them where they want to ensure that government does not have a carte blanche to do whatever that it wants to them, right? That the ideas which animated their founding uh, as an American nation were ideas of opposition to authority. And why they cherish their guns so much today, almost like a religion, is tied to this belief that somehow this gun symbolizes their opposition to authority and freedom from it. It is an illusion because tomorrow if the government wants to come and destroy you, it has tanks, it has missiles, it can, your guns are not going to do any good to you. But it is a kind of a, almost like a religious belief that they have that this gun actually symbolizes their opposition to authority. And in some sense, it's, it's again, it's not entirely bad because if you look at the other side, 
which is Marxist collectivism, it puts a premium on conformity. And now that is coming a big way in America, particularly among the people who are against guns, uh, the liberals. They are demanding all conformity to their wacky extreme ideas. The ideas that they are playing with today are practically like fire. Racist ideas, ideas of uh, gender transitioning for children. These are very, very disastrous ideas. But nobody dares speak up. Nobody dares to speak out. If a, if a man wants to declare himself a woman, then you have to address that man with pronouns belonging to a woman. Otherwise, you pay a very significant price. So this is something that's very against the American spirit, which has now not just intruded, but it's also dominating them. So I think that guns by themselves are not good. Certainly, everybody can agree on that. But there is something to be said about this spirit of opposition to authority and rebelliousness, which they symbolize, which I think is very necessary to the American character if it is to maintain whatever semblance of freedom that it still can. It is a country now controlled by capitalists. They are setting the narrative. There are just six media corporations, which you know, less than that probably, who set the whole narrative. They have an illusion of independence, an illusion of freedom. And now more and more people are kind of realizing that. So hopefully they will find a way out of it. Uh, and they're also open to India's influence. That is one thing that needs to be said about America. Hopefully that grows and that will really help them a lot uh, if, uh, if they really keep to it, if they stick to it. Thank you. I would like to invite comments, remarks from other uh, of our speakers. I've, I've actually already uh, said what I uh, needed to say on uh, this, uh, Srijit. Right. Thank you. So I think uh, this was a very fruitful discussion. We are uh, towards the end of uh, our Chariki Chapter 7 today. And I would really like to thank uh, the speakers, Udayji, Govindji, and the keynote speaker, Arvindanji, for your uh, remarkable insight into the topic of uh, uh, war and peace and everything in between. And I would uh, last but not the least uh, like to also thank our participants who have animated this discussion with their very interesting questions, comments and remarks. So uh, thank you everyone. Namaskar. I would like to uh, hand it over to Nilabji now. Thank you, sir. I would like to thank Sri Aravindan Nilakandanji for giving us the keynote address and giving us the insights into the nature of war and peace with respect to Sri Aurobindo's philosophy. I would also like to thank Sri. Uh, I would also like to thank our panelists, Sri Govindji and Sri Uday Aryaji, for such a healthy and fruitful discussion and pointing out our uh, pointing our attention towards various facets of this issue. I would also like to thank Sri Sriji Dattaji for moderating the panel discussion with such lucidity. Finally, I will extend my gratitude to Dr. Sampadananda Mishraji for coming up with the idea of this initiative and uh, where we get a chance to learn so much from our esteemed speakers. Also, my sincere thanks to Team Rashtra Matrishihood University, without whom this would not have been possible. With this, we have reached 
the end of today's session we will observe a minute of silence and then we will can call I, it uh, just just one request uh, can i just say one line from savitri which i think is really pertinent to the discussion just one line uh, this is one of my favorite lines from shivangos savitri and it is this that earth is the chosen place of mightiest souls earth is the heroic spirits battlefield earth is the chosen place of mightiest souls earth is the heroic spirits battlefield thank you sir so now we will observe a minute of silence and then we will call it a day thank you everyone for joining us we will meet in the next we will meet in the next session of vacharity thank you thank you